From Salem to East Anglia, Bordeaux to the Black Forest of Germany, it seems there's no end of infamous witch trials that took place in history, spanning hundreds of years and thousands of miles. Somewhat less well-known are the many hundreds of werewolf trials that took place alongside them, and with such a degree of crossover that made them ultimately synonymous with the occult world of demons and the devil, with witchcraft and the Sabbath. Whilst witches may have been feared for the damage they could cause to the crops or the corruption they could sow within their communities, werewolves were feared on a far more primal level. Their danger came not from their insidious scheming, but their brutal ferocity, attacking, maiming and devouring the flesh of anyone who might find themselves alone on a dusty path at the wrong time. A predator stalking in the shadows, werewolves struck fear into the rural communities of France for over 200 years and whilst they may be considered hard to believe now, for many, they were once as real as the bloodstains they left on the ground. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 4, Episode 22. It's the last episode of Season 4 and of 2020. I can't say I'm too upset about seeing the back of 2020. I think that's probably a sentiment that's... um, going to be echoed throughout. Anyway, just a quick heads up. You might hear some knocking in the background. That's my neighbours from hell decided to move house. I'm trying to record when they're not doing that, but obviously I'm not afforded the luxury of infinite time to get this episode done. So yes, then you might hear a little bit of knocking here and there. Hopefully not. I'm going to try and edit it out, but if you do hear that, that's what that is. Just, Just an explanation. Before we get started... This is the last episode of 2020, so I need to give a quick shout out to the Christmas campfire episode. I've already got tons of submissions and it looks like we might be ending up with a couple of Christmas campfire episodes this year. So that's amazing. If you want to be involved, do send your Christmas campfire story in. Basically, if you've got a story of anything weird, scary, spooky that happened to you, send it in um, and I'll read it out and release it over Christmas um, because obviously I have the downtime between now and New Year but I like to do like the bonus episodes the Christmas campfire episode where we kind of travel back to that traditional sitting around the fire telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve kind of vibe so yeah if you've got a story and you'd like to send it in and have me read it out for the Christmas campfire episode please do go ahead and do so the email for that is social at darkhistories.com and it, I'll pop it in the show notes as well. Say so every year they get bigger and better and this year is absolutely continuing that trend by the looks of it. So yeah, if you want to send a story in, please go ahead and do so. Um, the deadline for that is the 20th of December and that will give me time to put it all together before Christmas. Obviously, I, um, you know, I, I want to thank everyone just for listening for the year but I'll, I'll do that at the end and then we can jump straight into this one now which is loop guru which is cannibalism and the werewolves of france when we think of werewolves today it's easy to conjure up images of painful transformations under a silver moon and of gory murders in dark forests we may also think of basketball or starry-eyed romance between handsome tweens Modern folklore would have it told that werewolves originated in Eastern Europe, Romania and Transylvania, 
synonymous with the shadowy forests of vampires and dilapidated castles. However, this is little more than modern fiction, drawing on American popular folklore. Likewise, the iconic werewolf transforming under a full moon is one of pure modern invention. The werewolves of Eastern Europe, in fact, can be traced from those stories that seeped out of France, Switzerland and Germany into the wider area and eventually into the books of gothic fiction and the black and white horror movies of early Hollywood. In fact, werewolf literature has a long history, extending back as far as the first century, when Petronius wrote Senna Trimalchionis, a work of fiction containing a scene where dinner guests swap stories as they eat, one of which concerns a werewolf, an account which is repeatedly referred to by medieval demonologists to explain werewolf behaviour. In Europe, throughout the 16th and early 17th centuries, the mythology of the werewolf crossed over into the everyday landscape and saw rural communities terrorised by beasts that were better off left as whispered folktales. Coinciding with the widespread witch trials of the time, there were a number of werewolf trials in France, originating on the Swiss border and spreading as far as the western coasts in the Pyrenees. The number of trials is a relative unknown, and whilst there have been modern publications quick to put a figure on the number, ranging from anywhere from 200 to 30,000, is likely to be both significantly smaller and significantly more difficult to pin down. As a single example of the issues that arise when trying to calculate the cases of werewolves, in the hundred years that followed the first recorded case in 1521, one can evaluate the demonologist and aspiring politician Henry Bouguet who served as the Grand Judge of Saint-Claude in Franche-Comté from 1596 to 1611. In various texts, Bouguet has been attributed with sending upwards of 600 individuals to execution. However, by his own admission, he put the figure at only about 80, and in truth, of those recorded, he sentenced to execution only 28 of the 35 cases that he presided over. There are some historians that put forward well-developed arguments that the number of werewolf trials in France, with which we have any evidence, lay around the 50 mark rather than the spurious 30,000. This discrepancy in figures lies with not only the sensationalist witchcraft publications of the modern era, but with the political atmosphere of the day too. Men like Boguet and Delancre, another demonologist and witch hunter from the same period who was keen to fill the French prisons with religious heretics from the Basque region, were enthusiastic to spread the dangers of witchcraft throughout France and impress upon the people that the trials they undertook were both justified and necessary rather than just a form of political religious propaganda. Numbers were inflated, withdrawn, amended and miscounted from one book to the next in order to suit the agenda of the author. Outside of the cases recorded officially by the authorities, there are also the thousands of accusations based on slander, formal complaints and petty bickering amongst the common rural populations, a significant number of which were simply localised squabbling and which had their cases thrown out before ever reaching trial. Another reason that makes singling out the werewolf trials difficult is that many had a distinct crossover with trials of witches. Many of the earliest accounts, in fact, stem from a witch's ability to shapeshift into numerous creatures at will, from hares to cats, dogs, and, of course, wolves. Many more accounts of witches tell of how they would ride through the night, not on broomsticks, but on the back of a bewitched wolf. With so much crossover, the lines become blurred very quickly, 
as to who was tried as a witch and who as a werewolf. With wolves being such a widespread fear, it's fairly easy to see where the fear of the werewolf came from. Throughout the world, traditions of shape-shifting humans is commonplace, from the were-leopards of Malaysia through to the were-crocodiles and elephants of Africa, the prominence of wolves in Europe, the preying on the livestock of the rural populations, decimated from Black Death, made wolves the obvious villain within that cultural context. On a deeper level, wolves were a symbol of the outsider, the predator, the trickster, and in Christian belief of greed, destructiveness, and of the devil. Once removed from this European context, it's interesting to note that the symbol of the wolf could mean quite the opposite, as in the case of Japan, where the wolf was seen as a symbol of protection against fire and disease and were revered for their protection of the crops as they preyed on the boar and deer that might otherwise destroy their harvests. In Europe, however, wolves were firmly cemented as an icon of fear. Those that ran with wolves were seen as demonic, social and religious deviants that messed with the black arts and made deals with the devil. English folklorist, historian and vicar Sabine Baring Gould was one of several historians that documented such cases, one of the most famous of which is the case of Jules Garnier, a poverty-stricken hermit that lived in the woods in the east of France, close to the Swiss border. Seven miles to the northwest of the French commune of Dole, perched in the woods, sat a small lichen-covered house. Its roof was covered in turf, whilst its shabby perimeter fence hung from its supports, broken in several places. The poorly constructed walls of the shack bowed under the weight of the algae that crept up its sides, blending it into the forested backdrop. The residents of the tired structure were well known and much disliked in the local vicinity. Gilles Garnier, colloquially known as the Hermit of St. Bernard, was something of a social outcast, his rough appearance doing nothing to excuse his lack of religiosity. In the Reverend Sabine Baringgold's The Book of Werewolves, published in 1865, he described him as a sombre, ill-looking fellow who walked in a stooping attitude and whose pale face, livid complexion and deep-set eyes under a pair of coarse and bushy brows which met across the forehead was sufficient to repel anyone from seeking his acquaintance. Gilles lived with his wife, Apolline, and the pair scratched out a meagre existence in considerable poverty. For some time that summer, the local vicinity had been terrorised by wolves, with several attacks having been reported and the local rumours throughout the neighbouring territories of Espagne, Salvagne and Couchepon were of wolves stalking through the woods and carrying away children. The rumblings at the villages were enough that the local authorities issued a decree for a werewolf hunt to begin on the 13th of September. The said court, desiring to prevent any greater danger, has permitted, and does permit, those who are abiding or dwelling in the said place and others, notwithstanding all edicts concerning the chase, to assemble with pikes, halberds, arquebuses and sticks, to chase and to pursue the said werewolf in every place where they may find or seize him, to tie and to kill without incurring any pains or penalties. The werewolf hunt continued for several months, with little to no fruit being bore, despite the attempts of the seething locals. On the afternoon of Thursday the 9th of November, however, things were about to take a turn towards success. Two miles from Dole, on the outskirts of the region, a group of peasants were returning home from work where they had been laboriously watching over the cattle all day. 
The midday heat was tempered by the grey clouds obscuring the sunlight that shone through brief cracks in the blanketed sky as they approached a large meadow filled with the white flowers of the late-blooming Narcissi. As the group walked, the lazy air was pierced with the high scream of a young girl and followed by the unmistakable howling of a wolf. Running towards the screams, the men burst upon the scene of a young girl lying on the ground, desperately attempting to defend herself against a stooped figure that, after turning to see the approaching crowd, jerked away from the child whom he left lying on the ground, injured but alive, and lumbered off into the woods behind. Whilst the shadow of the trees that hung low behind the scene had cast a dim light across the girl and her attacker, many of the peasants swore blind that they had seen a wolf, though still many more were sure that they had seen a man they recognised as the local hermit, Gilles Garnier. Once the story ripped through the local villages, it didn't take long for the baying crowds to stamp their will upon the authorities, as more than 50 people signed statements against the hermit, leading to his imminent arrest. No matter how fast the locals had risen up against Garnier, however, it wasn't fast enough, and a week later, on the 16th of November, and with no arrest yet being made, a young boy aged 10 years old was attacked by the dusty roadside that ran along the vineyard of Gredesson, six miles to the north of Dole. His remains were discovered lying in a black, seeping pool of blood. The flesh from his arms, legs and stomach were chewed away. One of his legs had laid torn from the rest of his body, discarded to one side of the macabre scene. Fearing a riot, the authorities promptly arrested Garnier and took him to trial on the charge of homicide committed against the persons of several children, devouring of the flesh of the eyes in the form of werewolf and other crimes and misdemeanours. Shilgarnia's trial took place in the Parliament of Dole, beginning in January of the following year. During his testimony, he told the court of how he'd been destitute and struggling to sustain his family for some time, until one day when he was out foraging in the local woodland for food. He met with a phantom who promised him, aside from the many wonders of the world, the trick to inexpensively hunt through the woods as a wolf, lion or leopard. Considering his options, it seemed a natural fit, given the naturalisation of wolves in the area, to become a wolf, and so, rubbing himself in a liquid given to him by the phantom, he began his journey of murder and bloodshed throughout the region. On the 18th of August, Gilles came upon a young boy, around the age of 12 or 13, resting under a pear tree on the edge of the woods that surrounded the village of Perros. He lured the young man into a thicket, attacked and killed him, fully intending to eat him, until a group of men came upon the scene and disturbed him in the act, forcing him to flee. A month later, on the 29th of September, he once more attacked a young child, this time a girl aged 10 years old, in the vineyards of Chastanois by the outskirts of Dole. He killed her swiftly and dragged her body into the woods, stripped her naked and ate the flesh from her legs and arms. Once he had eaten his fill, he took a lump of the girl's flesh home to his wife. Alongside these murders, he confessed to the other murders in the region too and gave the impression to many that he truly believed himself to have been a fully transformed wolf at the time he carried out the attack. Witnesses, however, were mixed as some claimed that they saw the hermit make the attacks in the form of a man, whilst others said they saw only a wolf. Insanity was clearly ruled out, as he appeared lucid in every other way and communicated with the court with clarity. 
Judgment came swiftly for Garnier, and he was quickly found guilty and sentenced to death. On the 18th of January, he was dragged to the site of his execution, strapped to a pyre, and burnt alive. This account of Garnier's lycanthropy shares much in common with other werewolf trials from France in the 16th century. But there were, too, accounts that followed a more unusual path. The case of the Gandillon family was one of these cases which saw not a single werewolf tried, but an entire family. In 1598, 25 years on from the case of Garnier, a second case mentioned by Reverend Baring Gould came from the Jura region of France, far in the east, nestled up against the border of Switzerland and 75 miles from the events at Dole. Amongst the wooded, mountainous hills, small hamlets and villages sprung into being, surrounded by the rolling countryside. Within one of these remote rural hamlets lived the Gandillon family, Panette, the young Gandillon daughter, Pierre, her elder brother, and his two children, Georges and Antoinette. The Gandillon family were undoubtedly poor. They had a small attachment of livestock that they tended after, most likely the goats, and bore all the classic hallmarks of a rural family living on a meagre income. They were dirty, with blackened fingernails and matted hair, and concerned largely with surviving rather than the luxuries of church and community life. Pernet was the first to fall foul of the locals. A strange child, she was known to run about on all fours whilst howling like a wolf. The story follows that one day she came across two young siblings, a brother and sister, gathering strawberries in a field, and in a violent blood rage, she lunged upon the young girl, attacking her with her claws and teeth. The brother, who was at that time just four years old, fended the wolf girl away from his sister by brandishing a knife. Pernet was identified as the attacker and tried for transforming into a werewolf, during which time she testified that her brother and sister were too afflicted by the dark arts. The trial ended poorly for the young girl and the judge, Henry Boguet, saw to it that she be put to death, a sentence the local villagers gladly carried out by stoning her. Following Pernet's testimony, both Pierre and Antoinette were duly trialled by Boguet under the charges of witchcraft. Pierre was accused of leading children to the Sabbath, calling down hailstones to destroy crops and for transforming into a werewolf. Pierre admitted to all charges, elucidating upon the story and confessing to have slept with a she-demon transformed into several animals, including both a hare and a wolf and of having attacked and eaten several of the local livestock, as well as their human masters. Pierre's two children were next to the stand, and both Georges and Antoinette admitted to attending the Sabbath. For Georges, it was in the shape of a wolf, whilst Antoinette confessed to selling herself to the devil, who visited her in the form of a black goat. Both Pierre and Georges were said to have been covered in scars across their bodies, which were assumed to have been from the wounds that they had received whilst running as wolves. Whilst they were imprisoned during the trial, they prowled around their cell, howling like wolves and walking on all fours. Though they were never witnessed to transform fully into the shape of wolves, this was explained by their lack of access to the salves that they had used that they had received from the devil when they were free. Boguet found all three guilty of the charges brought against them, and they were hanged before being burnt to ash and scattered into the cold mountain winds. 
Whilst many of the accounts of werewolves were written about in the 16th to 18th centuries via court transcripts or adapted from oral tales, and whilst the overwhelming majority of werewolf trials ended in the death penalty for those accused, it's essentially impossible to receive an unbiased account of the trials. Amongst the litany of trials that took place in France, there is a singular account of a werewolf that saw the guilty party pardoned and allowed to live, that of Jean Grenier, a young 14-year-old boy from the Basque region in the southeast of France. Whilst the account is no less biased, it is unique in its description of the accused werewolf after his trial had taken place and after his story had become embedded in law. Born in Bordeaux, 1553, Pierre de Rostecoy, Sir de Lancre, was educated by Jesuit teachers in Toulouse and Turin before studying at the Jesuit College de Clermont in Paris. He received his Doctorate of Law in 1579 and began working as a lawyer in Bordeaux. In 1582, he joined the Bordeaux Parlement as a magistrate. In 1599, he travelled extensively throughout Italy for a year and upon returning wrote his first work on witchcraft, published in 1609. The Tableau de l'Inconstance. Off the back of this book, shortly after returning to Bordeaux in December of 1609, he was charged by King Henry IV with conducting a royal commission to investigate witchcraft in the Labour region in the southeast corner of France, bordering the Pyrenees to the south. This four-month investigation saw de Lancre rip through the region, identifying and punishing those who were known to dabble in the dark arts of which there were many, according to Delancre, who found the Basque region filled to the brim with people engaged in Sabbath, dedicating their children to Satan, eating human flesh, and inflicting harm on the local cattle and crops. The people of Basque country were annexed into France in 1451 and had endured a great effort to maintain both their cultural and administrative independence from France. It's little doubt that this played a strong hand in shaping the attitudes of the French lawyer throughout his travels in the region. With these prejudices in one hand, and a firm belief in the realms of witchcraft in the other, Delancre committed himself to his work with the aid of an interpreter, a French cleric named Lorenzo de Halde, who had grown up in the region, hunting out and exposing witches and their evil deeds with a zealous enthusiasm, keen to impress on the realities of the craft and of the dangers it posed to both people and public order. His time in Le Bourg culminated in his second work, which could be seen, at least in part, to have been written as a justification for his aggressive and less-than-stellar legal actions during the investigation. The Tableau de l'Inconstance, où il est amplement des sorciers et de la sorcellerie, published in 1612. It is within this second work that Delancre included the following story of a young man named Jean Grenier whom he had met in a monastery where he was serving life imprisonment for his actions as a werewolf. Though the tale, as Delancre told it, was based upon a written record of a verbal account which Delancre himself admitted was in such poor condition that he could barely recognise the writer in the work, it has become one of the more infamous stories of lycanthropy from the era. On the 29th of May, 1603, an inquest took place concerning a series of wolf attacks that had been attributed, after confession, to a young man of 14 named Jean Grenier. Jean lived in distinct poverty. His clothes were in tatters and his limbs emaciated. The full description of the boy is coloured with the knowledge of his werewolf credentials, including 
small pale grey eyes that twinkled with an expression of horrible ferocity and cunning from deep sunken hollows. His skin was a dark olive, his fingernails were pointed like bird's talons, and his canine teeth protruded over his lower lip. The inquest followed an attack that had taken place in broad daylight on Marguerite Poirier, a 13-year-old girl who resided in the village of Palau, where both she and Grenier lived. Grenier had been quick to confess to the crime, and he embellished upon it further by adding that he would have eaten her had she not defended herself with a stick. He further confessed to have already eaten two or three young children in the past. As a witness during the inquest, Marguerite told the authorities that she had frequently tended to the local livestock together with Grenier, who had told her that he could change into a wolf whenever he pleased. In this form as a wolf, he said of how he had taken and killed dogs, eaten their flesh and drank their blood, though it had paled in comparison to the flesh of young children, he said. In evidence of this, he told Marguerite of how he had recently taken a young boy, eaten two pieces of him and given the rest to a nearby wolf to finish off. Later, he had killed a second child, this time a young girl, and he had eaten her entirely, save from her arms and a part of her shoulder. Marguerite then gave the inquest a description of the beast that had attacked her. It was bigger and shorter than a wolf. It had red fur and a short tail. The animal's head was smaller than that of a wolf. Following Marguerite's testimony, a second witness, 18-year-old Jean Gaborio, told the court her own story. She said that one day, as she and some other girls were tending the flock, Jean Grenier came up and asked them who the prettiest shepherdess was. Jeanne asked him why he wanted to know. Because, he said, I want to marry her, so if it is you, it is you I want to marry. She asked him who his father was. He replied that he was a priest. At that point, she replied that he was very dark-skinned, and he replied that his skin had been dark only for a short while. She asked whether he had become dark from the cold or from burning himself, and he replied that it was because of a red wolf skin that he wore. She asked who had given him this skin, and he answered that it was a man named Pierre Laboureau. And who is that? asked the shepherdess. A man, he replied, who, when in his house, wears an iron chain around his neck, and in this house there were people in chairs who were burned, still others who were in a big pot and he said that the house and the room were very large and quite black. She said that he had told her that when he put his wolf's coat on, he would transform himself into a wolf and into whatever other kind of animal he wanted. He said that he had transformed himself into a wolf, and in this form had killed dogs and sucked their blood, but that it tasted bad, and that boys and girls were much more pleasant and agreeable to eat. He runs every Monday, Friday and Saturday when the moon is low, one hour per day only, toward evening and toward morning. Grenier had also implicated nine other people that ran with him as a wolf, several who were his neighbours. Following the inquest, the young man was promptly arrested and set for trial. The werewolf trial of Pierre Grenier took place a month later, on the 2nd of June, 1603. During the trial, he laid out a picture of his life for the prosecution and he confessed to far more crimes than the witnesses had initially accused him of. Though he had previously told Jeanne Garborio he was the son of a priest, he now changed his story, saying instead that he was the son of Pierre Grenier, known commonly as the Revolutionary, in his home parish of Saint-Antoine de Pisson. Unsure of the exact timeline, 
John explained that three or four years prior, whilst working in the village of Paulet, he met another young man on the road home named Pierre from a well-to-do, wealthy family well-known in their home village. Pierre told Jean that there was a man in the St. Antoine forest who wanted to speak to them. So together, the pair entered the dense woodland in search of this mysterious caller. Whether or not Pierre knew where to go is not discussed, but the pair quickly wound up finding the man looking for them, dressed all in black and mounted on a large black horse. They said good morning to him because it was dawn, and then he dismounted and kissed them with an extremely cold mouth. Afterwards, he got back on his horse, and shortly thereafter, they lost sight of him. After he made them promise that after he left, they would seek him out whenever he asked for them. Before riding off, the men marked the boy's buttocks with a pin and made them promise that they would seek him out whenever he called for them. The man did call for them to the forest on three further occasions, each time making the boys rub down his horse, gave them wine to drink, and promised them money. The boys drank their wine and saw to the horse and would then leave. In order to corroborate his story, Jean pulled down his pants and showed the court a red mark on his left buttock in the shape of a small shell, which, he said, was the scar left by the man. He showed his mark with which the evil spirit branded him, which is like a little circle that has no feeling inside, like that of the other witches, and it appears as if the part touched by heaven's fire are in the part that has been made insensitive. One of the most certain proofs of a crime and of being the devil's succubus is the mark, as all of those who have written on this subject have observed. When the court questioned him on the testimony of Marguerite Poirier, Jean confessed that every word was true. He had attacked and attempted to take her with plans to kill her, but he had been beaten away by a stick. He also added a somewhat contradictory statement to the story by telling the court that he had wanted to marry her. Of her original statement, Jean only protested that he had not drunk the blood of the dog, though he had no issues with admitting to killing the animal. The thorny issue of who else he had killed as a wolf then came to the fore, though Jean gladly recounted his story. He said that once, when he was on his way home from Contrast to saint Alay, he entered a house where he saw no one, and there he found a baby boy about a year old who was in the cradle. He took this child between his teeth and carried him behind a garden wall and ate as much of him as he wanted and gave the rest to a wolf that was nearby. He did not know the name of the village or the parish, but he said that there were only three houses there. He added that on his way to the parish St. Antoine de Fison, he came upon a little girl wearing a black dress who was tending sheep. He killed her and ate as much of her as he wanted, just as he did with the boy. Then he gave the rest to the wolf that was nearby. But it is remarkable that he said it was he who lowered her dress because he did not rip it. This is something that we observed to show that while real wolves tear with their claws, werewolves tear with their teeth. And just like men, they know how to remove the dresses of the girls they want to eat without ripping them. He also said, about ten weeks earlier, he took a little girl near a quarry and that after he dragged her into the briar, he ate her. When he wants to run, he wears a wolf's skin the one the Lord of the Forest brings him when he wants him to run. Then he rubs himself with some kind of grease from a pot the Lord of the Forest also gave him, after first taking off the clothes he normally wears in the fields and bushes. Asked where he kept his skin and his pot of grease, he replied that all of it was at the home of the Lord of the Forest, who sent them to him when he wanted, and every time 
You put it on in order to run as a werewolf. After this testimony from Jean, the court closed for a day and summoned his father, Pierre, in order to corroborate some of Jean's story. Earlier in the session, he had mentioned that his father had, on three occasions, helped him to apply the grease to his body and put on the wolf skin. The following day, on the 3rd of June, testimonies from fathers of children who had been eaten or otherwise attacked by a wolf fitting the periods given by Jean were taken to see if they matched with Jean's story. These witnesses and the accused completely agreed with regard to the crime, the place and other circumstances concerning the time, the appearance of the werewolf, the wounds, the help that the parents of other people gave to their boys and girls who had been hurt, the words they said to each other while screaming at the wolf, the weapons or sticks they used, everything right down to the smallest details, even including which one of the three children the wolf had chosen because he was the most delicate and the most plump. Indeed, one of the witnesses, named Jean Roulier, reported that the werewolf had taken the plumpest of his three children, whom he had found in the fields. He was saved by a brother of the witnesses with the weapons he had in his hand. Pursuing the evil animal, the brother of the witness, when he saw him run away, said, I will get you. Several of the witnesses positively identified Jean after seeing him in the court, and Jean himself said he recognised many of the witnesses as victims of his attack. Later, Marguerite Poirier displayed the wounds to the court that she still bore from her own attack. The court now rounded upon Jean in order to find out what he had been doing in more recent months and to question him on why he had apparently left his father's home three months prior. Jean replied that he had left after he had fallen out with his father for eating a bowl of milk with cabbage during Lent and his father had beaten him. Out of spite, he had run away from home Though with little plan and with no way to support himself, he had been quickly reduced to begging in order to survive. His mother, he told the court, had left his father a long time ago, after she had witnessed him vomiting up the paws of dogs and hands of children. Jean went on to explain that he had at times ran together with his father as a wolf, and that two years prior, together they had taken a young girl tending geese in a field outside the nearby village of Grillau. Together, they had dragged her from the field and into a forest where they ate her. When he was confronted by his father in the courtroom, Sean stood steadfast behind his claims, accusing him outright of all of what he had told. As the trial ticked onwards, Sean's testimony seemed to get wilder and wilder. He admitted to having eaten over 50 people, including a young baby from an empty house that he had dragged away and devoured, a young shepherdess, an elderly woman with skin as tough as leather, and a dog owned by a Monsieur Milan, who had chased him away with a rapier. Listening to Jean's testimony and the accusations against his father, the court found it time to make their decisions on what to do with the boy. For some, it was clear that a crime had been committed, that Jean had been communing with the devil in the forest and had been using both the wolf skin and the grease obtained from the devil to transform into a werewolf. But it was not so simple for everyone present. Several jurors took the stance that Jean was suffering from illusions. Some believed it to be the work of witchcraft, whilst others thought he was simply insane. Though this too was given a demonic bent, and presumed likely that the onset of lunacy was brought about with the aid of demonic meddling. Whichever way their pendulum swung, they could all agree that Jean was undergoing some form of transformation, whether it be caused by imagination 
or something more otherworldly. In an act of some empathy, the court saw that Jean was a young boy, and more, he was a young boy from the country. Being ignorant of God, they measured was not necessarily a crime, and being unable to recognise, destroy or shake off the seductions of an evil spirit is something that even learned men from the time struggled with. So how could they expect an ignorant child to do any more? On the 6th of September, 1603, the court condemned Jean Grenier to be locked up in one of the city's monasteries for the rest of his life. He had escaped the death penalty, at least as long as he remained within the monastery, as any attempt to leave would see him hanged or strangled. Jean's father managed to walk free, despite his son's best efforts against him. In 1610, seven years after the end of the trial, Pierre de Lancre visited Jean Grenier, now aged 21, in the monastery that was his prison. There he found the young man once more transformed, this time in more spiritual ways. De Lancre remarked that Jean now spoke more sense than when he was at trial. Under the instruction of the fathers at the monastery, he had learnt to abhor his past actions and detest the lord of the forest. He was a young man of medium height, rather small for his age, with wild-looking eyes that were sunken and black and completely distraught. His eyes gave the impression that he was ashamed of his misfortune, which he seemed to understand somewhat. He did not dare look anyone straight in the eye. Though he now appeared to walk on two legs, when he first entered the monastery, it was a remark that he displayed a remarkable ability to walk on all fours and to jump large distances while doing so. He had very long and bright teeth that were wider than normal, protruding somewhat and rotten half black from being used to lash out at animals and people. His fingernails were also quite long and some were completely black from the base to the tip, even that of the thumb of the left hand, which the devil prevented him from trimming. This clearly shows that he was indeed a werewolf and that he used his hands both for running and for grabbing children and dogs by the throat. All told, Jean seemed to be a changed man. The Lord of the Forest had visited him twice whilst he had been residing at the monastery and attempted to lure him back into his clutches via the promises of riches. But on both occasions, Jean had turned him away and made the sign of the cross in order to drive him out. Despite the years passing, Jean still appeared to hate his father and he maintained that he was also a werewolf. Moreover, he said that he himself still lusted after flesh from time to time. In particular, he had found the flesh of little girls particularly delicious. With all the cases of werewolves that were recorded throughout the 16th century, we are left to question precisely what it was that was going on. Were people really transforming into animals? Were they really murderous werewolves riding alongside witches, kidnapping children? And did people really believe any of this? In the case of Jean Grenier, it's often considered in a modern context to have been a case of lycanthropy, a generic term that encompasses a group of psychiatric syndromes including delusions of being an animal, dissociation, schizoid personality disorder, organic brain syndrome, bipolar disorder, psychomotor epilepsy and psychosis. Rather than Jean literally transforming into a wolf, most theories consider that he was simply unwell or unhinged. In fact, even at the time of his trial, there was serious consideration of his mental health, which may well have been a factor in his avoiding a sentence of death, along with his young age factoring in his inability to fending off the temptations of the devil. 
such diagnoses are not limited even to the Middle Ages. In 1977, the American Journal of Psychiatry documented a case of lycanthropy involving a 49-year-old Texas woman who felt like an animal with claws. Aside from the belief that she was a wolf, she was witnessed by her husband and members of her family as having walking on all fours, growling, gnashing her teeth. She clawed at the air and said that she felt Satan had entered her body. When she looked in the mirror, she saw not the face of a woman staring back, but the head of a wolf in place of a face on my own body, just a long-nosed wolf with teeth, groaning, snarling, growling, with fangs and claws. If this were the case, however, then how do we account for the witnesses' reports of literal wolves carrying out attacks? The most obvious answer is that several attacks attributed to werewolves were simply attacks by normal wolves. Wolves were naturalised in France and relatively common right up until the 1930s when they were eventually eradicated. On the complete flip side, and in the bluntest terms possible, it's very likely that much of the eyewitness testimonies were simply fabricated. Much in the way that the witch trials were often simply persecution of elderly women who fell outside of societal norms, so too were the werewolf trials focused around individuals who lived on the fringes of communities. In the case of Gilles Garnier, we have an outsider living on the outskirts of civilization, poor and likely an outcast either due to one or a combination of reasons from physical, social or religious. He was known well enough in the area to have garnered the nickname of Hermit, which might lead us to believe that his outcast status was both long-standing and well understood, if not instigated directly by the locals. If we are willing to believe the medieval testimonies, many suggested that though this literal werewolf was, for the large part, the form of a full-sized wolf, there were often key characteristics of the werewolf's human form transferred, sometimes as incomplete transformations, and sometimes as certain markings or trinkets which accounted for the witnesses being able to aim their accusations towards a singular target in the community. One of the more interesting aspects of the werewolf trials was the sheer number that included rubbing a liquid or grease on their skin in order to begin their transformation. Similar ointments were referred to in witch trials across Europe, including the witch trials of the 16th century, and can also be seen in the cases of the Benandanti from Italy. There is an argument to be made that much like the shaman might use ayahuasca, the werewolves may well have been using a hallucinogenic compound to enact their transformation. Henry Boguet, the judge from Bordeaux who put the Gandillon family to death, had considered this idea, and a 17th century physician named Jean de Ninel wrote of the possibility of an ointment being made from henbane, opium, nightshade, parsley and belladonna root to induce hallucinations. Today, the vast majority of people will consider the idea of a human transforming into a wolf as completely absurd. So why was it so easy to believe in the Middle Ages? In fact, even in the 16th century, the witch hunters were aware of the caution required when approaching an accusation of werewolves. In the case of Jean Grenier, Pierre de Lancre held that he did not believe Jean to have truly transformed into a wolf in a literal sense. Rather, that he had been under an illusion created by the devil the Reverend Baring Gould, despite being an acclaimed demonologist with some pretty off-the-wall ideas, wrote in the 19th century, It is a well-known fact that men whose minds are unhinged 
will deliver themselves up to justice, accusing themselves of having committed crimes which have actually taken place. And it is only on investigation that their self-accusation proves to be false. And yet they will describe the circumstances with great minuteness and be thoroughly convinced of their own criminality. And let's not forget that many of the witches and werewolves that confessed to crimes did so only after a few good sessions of being tortured on the rack. For the heavily superstitious rural population of the 16th century, it was a lot less difficult to imagine a literal transformation could be possible. Many lived their lives with firm beliefs based in traditional folklore, often blended with the religious teachings. It becomes somewhat easier to understand the point of view when we consider that the Bible is scattered with stories of miraculous transmutations. Lot's wife transformed into a pillar of salt, Moses' staff was turned into a serpent, and one of the most infamous fables sees water turned into wine. Even the more educated, scientifically minded of the times saw that alchemy could create transformations within metals through applying heat. So why should it have been so hard to believe that demons might also know how to bend nature in these peculiar ways? This twisting of the elements to one's will was also seen as a viable answer for the ability of witches to control the weather. Whether the werewolves of France in the 16th century were symptoms of mental illness, bitter feuds, hallucinogenic drug use or blunt demonomania, there is no question that in the minds of many they were a very real part of life in rural communities. The answers may lie in one, or all of the above theories, or none at all. But whatever the case, it's probably safe to assume that people were not literally transforming into wolves on a regular basis. And much like the various witch trials of the time, the numerous executions were more than likely based on spurious trials, carried out by men who were wrapped up in self-interest, political and religious propaganda, or simple examples of the ignorance of the times. No matter the answer, the werewolf trials of the 16th century become no less fascinating when viewed through whichever lens you may choose to view them through. The story of a human transforming into a murderous beast to stalk in the shadows of the moonlight still endures in the folklore of today, and with just as much ability to terrify and impress. French werewolves, there we have it. So let's have a look at that, and we'll have a little bit of a chat after these short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible. And the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. 
Some of my favourite books on there today are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now. But for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really, with options for one, three, and five dollars per month. And for that, You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. thought we'd finish the series on a bit of a get back to the 15th, 16th centuries is always a lot of fun and, and sort of pick a bit of a bigger episode as well, a big, big meaty subject. It is one of those things where it's such a big subject, it's difficult to get really into in that kind of one hour bracket that I've given myself. But, you know, I hope there was enough there to enjoy it. So anyway, um, I don't know what you took from the episode. For me personally, I'm fairly sure that there was no werewolves and that they're very much like the witch trials at the same time where they were just terrible trials of pretty unwell people a lot of times. Or not even unwell, sometimes just, you know, like I said, like outsiders and outcasts, you know, whether it was because they didn't believe in in the dominant religion of of the vicinity or, you know, they were just looked a bit funny or they were a bit old or whatever, you know. I think we can pretty much apply that 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 line of thought to the werewolves as much as we can the witches. Uh, I, I, some things that I thought were interesting, uh, Jean Grenier's story, I thought it was funny that he ad- admitted fully to running away from his father's home out of spite and then totally chucked his dad under the bus <laughs> by dumping him in it and saying that he also was a werewolf and had killed a bunch of people and but I did find it full of like cracking imagery and stuff when he said that his mum left his father because she, um, his father had vomited up the paws of animals and of, of the hands of young children. It's, it's uh, I don't know, it's very, um, it's very dark histories, right? <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was certainly an interesting um, episode to research. And, and a, a couple of things just on that that I'll chuck out. Um, firstly, a lot of the writing on this is 
absolutely wild uh, and and a book that I absolutely 100% recommend reading despite the fact that it's a bit of a challenge and a bit heavy going is the English translation of On the Inconsistency of Witches Pierre de Lancre's Tableau de l'Inconstance uh, I'm totally going to butcher this French if I give you the full title because it's it's really long I mean if you want a laugh I think it's called Tableau de l'Inconstance de Morvais Angers Demont. And, and then there's a lot more as well. But like I say, it's just going to be butchering it. So let's not do that because it's total cringe. But it, I tell you what, it's a bit of a challenge to read it. Uh, it's not super difficult, but it's it's just, you know, it's a lot, it's quite heavy going being that it's such an old text. But wow, it's absolutely wild. And the, the, the chapter on werewolves and transformations is is incredible and, and worth reading really really worth reading it's just really good and um you know it just shows their beliefs um and just how out they were and and how readily willing they were to accept pretty out there stuff because it it seemed to them to make sense and and when you put it in the cultural context of the time i'm sure it did make sense you know these it wasn't written by morons you know these were really educated people writing these books and and I, and you can fully see their line of reasoning and their line of thought when they write this stuff, but um, yeah. Anyway, definitely worth reading the English translation of that if if you want if you can or you know if you can read French read the French. But um, yeah, it's it's a real banger of a book. Very interesting. <laughs> the other thing I, I just mentioned about the research, I guess something that I found really interesting: the story of Jules Garnier. So everyone has the dates wrong, almost everyone. So. Um, if you look up his story online, you'll see the same dates repeated over and over again. And that's because they're all basically copy and pasted from one another. But all of their dates are wrong. So if you go back to like the, the, the kind of earliest document on the case, it gives you the dates in really weird ways. It says like the last Friday after the day of St. Andrew or something like that. Well, you can work that out um, and you can work out when the date was. And it's pretty easy. But interestingly, I found that all my dates were off very slightly from everyone else's. They were off by like a day and I couldn't work out why. And then I found out that it was because 1572 or whatever year it was that that took place was actually a leap year. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that the guy who wrote the English translation in the 19th century probably didn't realise that it was a leap year. And that's why everyone's dates are wrong. Because, I mean, I say everyone, I don't know about everyone, probably people who have gone back like I did to the original French and worked it out, taking into account the leap year, they've probably done what I've done and, and adjusted the dates. But, but you know, a, 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 an awful lot of English resources on this, on the internet at least, have uh, really messed the dates up. It was really interesting. Um, it's not really a big deal, but it's just something, you know, to me it was like a little win for me when I was kind of doing it, I guess. But anyway, yeah, outside of that, that's the end of this season. It's been an absolute pleasure to bring season four to you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I'm going to be back in the new year with the start of season five with the first weekend of January. It's been a pretty weird year and it has changed dark history slightly. Um, you know, I've, I've had to alter some of the episodes that I, I wanted to release and things like that. Um I would say this season's been a little more lighthearted than some of the other seasons, 
purely because of what's going on in the world. So yeah, it's, it's it has been a bit of a strange year. You know, a lot of weird things happen. I say I'm I'm absolutely not in going to be alone when I say um, you know it's been it's not been the easiest year. So I want to wish you a, a, a merry Christmas and a happy new year, and I hope that you're you stay healthy for that and healthy in the new year. And you know, here's to next year, and and hopefully it will be an awful sight better. I'll be back in January and between now and then I'll, I'll be doing the Christmas campfire episode so I'm not going to disappear entirely for a month but yeah I just wanted to take this opportunity now because I know not everyone listens to the campfire episodes when they come out just to wish you all you know happy Christmas if you don't celebrate Christmas happy holidays happy new year just 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 all the health and happiness really for the holiday season and and you know here's to a, a great new year also just want to take this opportunity just to say thank you say for downloading and listening and sticking with me throughout this year um and always with dark histories thanks so much for all of your support and and i don't just mean sort of financially if you are a patron member i mean like in every way it like i always say it and it gets a bit tacky um you know this is once a year so bear with me but you know I've, i feel like this show is a, a communal effort it's I never feel like it's just me sitting at home recording and putting it together and putting it out and, and it just going into the other, you know. It's a constant back and forth with, with you, the listener. Um, you know, you send me your emails, you send me uh, your messages, um, you, you share the podcast around, you know, or, or you leave reviews, um, good and bad, whatever, you know. But all of that stuff, it makes it a two-way street. And it, and I do feel like it's a, com- a communal effort. Um, and, and I love making the podcast. So I just want to say thank you very much for being a part of it and sharing it and, and making it grow as much as it has. Because again, like this year's been pretty much shit, let's be honest, um, for everything. But f- um, for me personally, for the podcast is... You know, I've seen an awful lot of growth. And really that's thanks to you for all the support that you've given me. Um, So yeah, anyway, enough of that slushy stuff. Thanks very much for everything. Um, Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back in January. Uh, If you're a Patreon member, hold on, because I'll I'll come back at the end um, and have a little chat about this episode a bit more about, you know, the kind of behind the scenes of me putting it together. But otherwise, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so social media. Dark History is pretty much everywhere. If you go to darkhistories.com, you'll find all the links to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, all the links are in the um, podcast notes as always. And if you would like to support, all the ways of doing that are also on darkhistories.com. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad place to really go and it's kind of like the hub, really. If you want to contact me, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com. If you would like to send a story in for the uh, Christmas campfire you can do so at social at darkhistory.com. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Take care. Have a fantastic new year. Have a great holiday period. All the health, happiness and, you know, love for you and your family for the new year. Thanks very much. Sleep tight.